turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter uh, 12, uh, this is a message that's uh, one of the messages that's, that's been on my heart for a while, and um, I want us uh, to take some time uh, looking at this part of Scripture this morning, and the title of the message is A Counter- Revolutionary Blueprint for Christians in California. A counter-revolutionary blueprint for Christians in California. As you guys know, uh, I don't need to tell you this, we live in a state that prides itself on being a leader in the cultural revolution against God. For decades now, Hollywood producers have shamelessly pumped a defiling stream of wickedness into the souls of people across our nation, exerting a staggering influence in shaping our nation's culture after its own image. More recently, our state is seeking to lead the rest of the nation regarding abortion, even to the point of Governor Newsom putting up billboards in other states, inviting women from other states to come to California where they can abort their babies. In fact, the billboard reads, and I quote, need an abortion? California is ready to help, unquote. And then amazingly, at the bottom of this billboard is a quotation from the Bible, A quotation from Mark chapter 12, verse 31, where Jesus is quoted as saying, and I quote, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these, unquote. So Governor Newsom thinks that helping a woman abort her baby is loving your neighbor as yourself. Never mind the fact that the closest neighbor to the pregnant woman is the baby living inside her womb. Ultimately, Governor Newsom is saying California is obeying Jesus' command to love your neighbor as yourself by helping women slay their closest neighbor living inside their wombs. Or to say it another way, California would like to be a safe place for women to come in order to make their womb a most unsafe place for the innocent baby growing in their womb. I could mention many other things that are unfortunately at work in our state, things that have caused many people in recent years to become fed up and leave the state of California altogether and live elsewhere. Perhaps you have relatives and friends in other parts of the country who wonder why in the world you are still living here. I know that God leads people in different ways, and I'm convinced that God has led some of our own members here at Cornerstone to move away from Cornerstone to other parts of our country. God knows that other states need the gospel as much as California does, right? 
And I'm grateful for some of our own members who have answered the call to go to these other states and to serve the cause of Christ there. And we have been blessed to participate in many of their decisions and essentially send them out with our blessing. And as much as we miss them, we wouldn't want them anywhere other than where they are now, in the center of God's will. Having said that, I'm also glad to be where God has put me, right here in California with you. And I'm grateful to be pastoring a church in this state. And I'm grateful to be living in the belly of the beast and thankful for the opportunity to join with you in giving the beast a stomachache whenever we can. I'm glad to be here and making a difference in people's lives in this city of Riverside, California. As I'm sure you have realized yourself, there is something that is quite bracing and I think even clarifying about the direction that our society is heading because it helps to show the distinctiveness of Christianity. And in the process, it provides us with an exciting opportunity, the kind of opportunity that the first century Christians had in ancient Rome. After the Supreme Court's Obergefell decision, I believe it was eight years ago, enshrining gay marriage into law, I remember uh, George Scipione saying something to this effect at an IBCD conference. He says, and I quote, the bad news is that our society is becoming more and more like ancient Rome. And the good news is that our society is becoming more and more like ancient Rome. I like that statement because it reminds us that the earliest Christians found themselves in a worse cultural situation than what we find ourselves in, and yet they lived out their Christian lives in a way that ultimately led to the salvation of many and ultimately led to the collapse of the pagan Roman Empire and the rise of Christianity in the West. In fact, you'll be interested to know that the last pagan emperor of Rome was a man named Julian who died in A.D. 363. During his reign, he witnessed the relentless progress of Christianity throughout the Roman Empire, and he also saw the inability of the Roman religions to motivate charity and love toward others the way that Christianity did. He despised Christianity with the utmost hatred, but he couldn't deny the charity that Christians showed toward everyone. Speaking of the Christians, he complained to his compatriots in Rome, saying, and I quote, These impious Galileans not only feed their own poor, but ours also, welcoming them into their agape feasts. They attract them as children are attracted with cakes, unquote. 
Julian fought hard to bring about a revival of the pagan Roman religions so that it could successfully compete with Christianity, but he failed. All he got for his efforts was the sight of Christianity growing in strength while the Roman religion was rotting from the inside out. And as Julian neared his death, he is reported to have said to Jesus in frustration, you have won, Galilean. And with that, the last of the pagan Roman emperors passed away with a whimper. And the question for us today is how did the ancient Christians pull off this amazing upset? Well, they followed the blueprint found in passages like Romans 12 and 13. And on this annual Vision Sunday, I want to just put this blueprint before you, a blueprint for the counter-revolution that Christ wants all of us to be engaged in here in California. There's obviously not going to be time for us to do a word-for-word exposition of these two chapters. I hope you'll take the time to reflect more thoroughly on these chapters on your own. I simply want to give you a flavor for the full sweep of Paul's thought in these two chapters and just point out some of the things that we find in these chapters. And namely, as you see on your notes, what we'll be pointing out are seven actions that we should engage in as counter-revolutionaries for the gospel here in California. Seven actions that we should engage in as counter-revolutionaries for the gospel here in California. Number one, you can fill in the blank on your notes if you're tracking with the outline this morning. We should believe the gospel. We should believe the gospel and savor the mercies of God. We should believe the gospel and savor the mercies of God. At the very beginning of Romans chapter 12, in verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. And stop right there. Before we look any further at what Paul goes on to say, let's realize that Paul has just spent 11 chapters evangelizing his readers with gospel truth. In Romans 1.15, Paul literally says to his readers, I am eager to evangelize you who are at Rome. But Paul couldn't go to Rome at this time, so what does he do? He writes them the book of Romans. And what is the book of Romans but the fullest and the most detailed portrayal of gospel truth that we find anywhere in the New Testament? And it was written to Christians in the city of Rome, right in the heart of the Roman Empire. Paul takes the time to evangelize these Christians in Rome because he considered the gospel to be their greatest need and because of his conviction that the gospel is the power of God into salvation to everyone who is believing Paul also evangelizes them because he viewed the gospel as absolutely essential for them being the difference makers that God wanted them to be at the center of the Roman Empire. 
And because he knew that the gospel was the most powerfully subversive thing that could be set loose in Rome. Oh, Paul knows exactly what he's doing in this letter. That's what Romans 1 through 11 is all about. In Romans chapter 1, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, Paul lays out the sin problem of mankind, and he shows how all have sinned and become alienated from God. And then beginning in Romans 3, 21 and following, he talks about how God acts in love toward sinners and declares them to be righteous in his eyes through faith in Christ Jesus. And Paul talks at length about why this justification of sinners is necessary and how it happens through the shed blood of Jesus at the cross. And Paul lays out the practical benefits of this justification in the lives of Christians in Romans chapter 5. Paul goes on to talk about our sanctification in Romans 6 through 8, telling us three times in Romans 6 that we have been freed from sin telling us that we don't have to live in bondage to the ravages of sin anymore because the chains of sin's guilt have been broken in our lives by Jesus Christ. What the law could not accomplish, God has accomplished in us through Christ. So there is now no longer any condemnation from God for those of us that are in Christ Jesus. Amen. We have been made sons and daughters of God. The spirit of God indwells us and we're destined for glory with God forever. And absolutely nothing could ever separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And that makes us overwhelming conquerors through him who loves us. All of these things give us great reason for hope in this life and also in the life to come, even though we groan still at the fallenness that is within us and that is around us in our world today. In Romans 9 through 11, Paul explains how God can give this amazing, staggering salvation to Gentiles like us, yet at the same time, remain true to his promises to Israel, whom he will save in the end. So it's after evangelizing his Christian readers in Rome for 11 chapters full of gospel truth that Paul then says in Romans 12.1, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God... The mercies of God he's just been reviewing. Paul wanted these Christians in Rome to do what he's about to tell them to do. But he wanted them to do these things for the sake of the gospel that he has just presented to them. And to set it loose. Charles Spurgeon once said something to the effect that you don't ever need to defend a lion. You just let it out of its cage and let it do what a lion does. And I think that's what Paul is trying to do here. 
In a way, he's saying to his readers, I'm about to tell you how you can let the gospel out of its cage and unleash it in your lives and set it loose to do its work in you and in the culture where you live. So believe the gospel and savor the mercies of God and be motivated by these mercies to do what I'm about to tell you to do next. And let this unleashing happen. This leads us to the second action that we should engage in as counter-revolutionaries for the cause of the gospel here in California. Number two, we should present ourselves with our fellow Christians as a community sacrifice to God. We should present ourselves with our fellow Christians as a community sacrifice to God. In verse one, Paul says, And I'm going to point out something from the Greek text here, because not all of the English translations reflect this. Paul says, therefore, I urge you, plural, brethren, plural, by the mercies of God to present your bodies, plural, a living and holy sacrifice, singular, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Notice how Paul goes from the plural to the singular sacrifice. In other words, he's speaking to the gathered assembly in the church of Rome, and he's saying, all of you present your whole selves all the way down to the physical part of who you are as a single community sacrifice to God. If Paul were speaking to us this morning, he would say, God doesn't want 450 separate sacrifices. He wants all of us to link up our arms with each other and then step forward together, as it were, and surrender ourselves as a single corporate sacrifice to God. He describes our doing this as being our spiritual service of worship. Literally, you could translate this, our reasonable Worship or our logical worship, surrendering ourselves to God in this communal way is the perfectly logical thing for all of us to do, given all that God has done for us in Christ. A simple takeaway from Paul's language here is this if you want to unleash the gospel in your life in the fullest possible way, to work in you and through you, you will want to find a body of believers in a local church whom you can link up your life together with so that you can be a part of helping to make that local church a sacrifice of worship fully dedicated to God. And as Paul says, also acceptable to God, well-pleasing to God. Our calling is not to necessarily present ourselves to the world in a way that the world finds acceptable, but to present ourselves to God as a sacrifice that's acceptable to Him, even if the world hates us for it. But what does our engagement in this God-pleasing community sacrifice look like? Well, Paul tells us, and this leads us to the third action that we should engage in as counter-revolutionaries for the cause of the gospel here in California. Let's word it this way. Number three, we should be continuously being transformed. 
We should be continuously being transformed. In verse 2, Paul says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and, we could say, well, pleasing is what this word means, and perfect. Paul knows how easy it, it is for us to get our cues from the world because it's the environment that we live in. And the world is always happy to press us into its mold. It's always exerting this pressure upon each of us. But Paul is commanding us to go against the flow and defiantly resist the world's attempts to shape us after its own image. And we should give heed to his command to not be conformed to this world. And we should realize that if we are born-again believers in Jesus, then what that means is that we are part of the resistance. And what we are resisting is the world. And so you, if you're a believer, are a part of the resistance. Live like it. But we must do more than merely resist the influence of the world. Speaking positively, Paul says, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now look at the text here and notice what Paul is not saying. He doesn't say, do not be conformed to this world, but instead you transform the world. That's not what he says. That's what some of us would love for Paul to say, right? We would love nothing more than if God would point out everything that is wrong with the world around us and then give us the mission to get out there and to change everybody else and to change our world. Now, to whatever degree our society here in America and here in California will accommodate our voice, we should actually want to be an influence for righteousness in our culture, right? In fact, doing that is good stewardship of the opportunities that we have in this democratic society. And many of you are great examples of this as you wisely take those opportunities to make your company and your neighborhood and the city and state a better place. But at least in this passage, Paul is not calling us to transform the world. He's telling us to look in the mirror and be about the business of being transformed ourselves. Evidently, one of the most important gifts that we can give to God and to ourselves and to the world around us is to be committed to allowing God to transform us as we renew our minds daily with gospel truth. But nowadays, we have a lot of people who are truly on a mission to change the world who have no interest in their own transformation. This can happen even in the church among Christians when Christians get so caught up in trying to change everyone else and trying to change the world around them that they actually become sour and nasty people 
and divisive people who lose sight of their own sin and their own need for transformation. This is unfortunate because one of the greatest proofs of the truth of the gospel of Christ is not your ability to transform other people, but your willingness to be transformed yourself deeply and uncomfortably transformed. So if you want to impact the world around you, be a transforming person, a transforming husband, a transforming wife, a transforming employee, a transforming neighbor, a transforming church member into the image of Christ, daily immersing yourself in the Bible and renewing your mind in community with others and repenting where you need to and asking God to change you through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. After all, it's, it's easy. It's easy to complain, for example, about how our society has abandoned the Bible's teaching on marriage when we aren't even doing what God commands us to do in our own marriages. Husband, are you a transforming husband who is growing in loving your wife like Christ loved the church? Wife, are you loving your husband more than you love your grievances against your husband? Is your marriage being shaped by the gospel in such a way that it is on a trajectory toward greater wholeness? Or is your marriage headed for divorce? How committed are you to being transformed deeply and uncomfortably toward a greater resemblance to Jesus Christ. Whatever your station of life is, married or single, do the world around you a favor and be continuously being transformed. It's one of the most counter-revolutionary things you can do. As you're being transformed into the image of Christ. There's another thing Paul tells us to do in this chapter, which leads us to the fourth action that we should engage in as counter-revolutionaries for the gospel here in California, and it's now that we're going to be covering a ton of verses. Number four, we should use our gifts in serving the body of Christ. We should use our gifts, our spiritual gifts, in serving the body of Christ. In verses 3 through 5, Paul says, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one of another. In these verses, there's a lot here, but I just want to point out, Paul is telling us that God has literally only given to each Christian a measure of faith, meaning that he has not given you the full package of what you need, but only a measure 
of that package. As for the rest of what you need, what did he do with that? Well, he's given that to your brothers and sisters and deposited it inside of them. And he's given you a portion of what they need to be whole as well. And the result of this kind of disbursement is that every person has been intentionally left by God with deficits that must be supplied by the gifting of others so that the only way we can experience the fullness of Christ is in relationship with, in community with one another as we minister to each other, which is why Paul goes on to say, beginning in verse 6, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. So no Christian has the complete package in and of himself, but the Christian who is living in community with others does have the complete package as he ministers his gifts to others and allows them to minister to him. And if we're all serving each other and being served in this way, something wonderful will happen. We will build up the body of Christ we will cause it to grow, and we will experience the transformation that God wants. And this church, right here in Riverside, California, will be the community of light that God wants it to be in a dark place. Now, the oil that makes the machinery of all of this work is a thing called love, which leads us to the fifth action that we should engage in as counter-revolutionaries for the gospel here in California. Number five, let's word it this way, we should live a lifestyle of love for one another and toward all. We should live a lifestyle of love for one another and toward all. Listen to what Paul says beginning in verse nine. He says, let love be without hypocrisy. That's what it says in the New American Standard. But literally, this verse simply starts with the noun agape, followed by a word that means without hypocrisy. So in one sense, you can take that word agape that begins verse 9 and let that serve as a title to the section that follows. And everything that follows in the coming verses is merely an explanation of what agape looks like, what the agape lifestyle looks like. And what it looks like is this. First, obviously, no hypocrisy. And then Paul continues and says, beginning in verse 9, abhor what is evil. So part of the agape lifestyle is to hate evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless 
and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. These are the behaviors of the counter-revolution. While our world is driven by selfishness and dysfunction and hatred and strife, we are to walk in agape love for one another and toward all. And how does Jesus tell us that this kind of behavior will impact the world around us? Well, in John chapter 13, verse 35, Jesus says, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. So never underestimate the evangelistic and apologetic power of us simply loving one another and loving others in the ways Paul is teaching us in this passage. Never underestimate the profoundly subversive power of sacrificial agape love. It's what Jesus did. And here we are 2,000 years later and our lives have been changed by him and we date our calendars by him who lived solely by agape love. Now you may be hearing this call to love in this way and, and think maybe it doesn't quite apply to you given your circumstances. You might say, hey, you know, loving everyone like this, that sounds well and good. That would be easy enough for me to do if it weren't for the fact that my brothers and sisters are so messed up and hard to love. Or if it weren't for the fact that my spouse is so messed up and hard to love. But Paul would not let you off the hook for that reason. Paul would tell you that the wrongs that others do against you And the ways that people let you down and hurt you actually create prime opportunities for you to mirror the gospel toward them. And this leads us to the sixth action that we should engage in as counter-revolutionaries for the gospel here in California. Number six, we should always do what is right and good, even to those who wrong us. We should always do what is right and good, even to those who wrong us. Beginning in verse 17, Paul says, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with what? With good. When we're wronged by others, we should not retaliate with evil, but respond by showing meaningful 
kindness to those who have wronged us. And doing that kindness, guys, is not some lame thing. Don't hear that and go, man, I'd love to do the powerful thing of responding with evil, but I got to do this lame thing of being kind. No, being kind to those who have wronged you is not some lame thing. When we do good to those who have wronged us, Paul tells us that we heap burning coals upon the head of the person that we have shown kindness to, and we overcome evil, not just their evil, but we also overcome the evil that was brewing in our own hearts against them. And we can behave this way, guys, because as Paul says in verse 19, we are beloved, beloved by God in Christ. And because doing so gives us the opportunity to pay forward the very grace that God has shown to us in Christ. You may be saying at this point, Pastor Milton, I, I want to be a revolutionary for Christ in the state of California, and so far you've only been giving me these lame instructions about how to live my life and serve in the church and how to respond when people do wrong against me. Give me something to do in connection with our government. That's where I want to focus my energies. Well, you'll be happy to know that Paul actually gets to that next. Which leads us to the seventh action that we should engage in as counter-revolutionaries for the gospel here in California. You ready for this? Number seven, we should respect and submit to our government wherever we can. We should respect and submit to our government wherever we righteously can. In Romans 13 Beginning in verse 1, Paul says, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil." Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. Can I get an amen? amen? For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves. Oh, they are devoted to our taxes. <laughs> devoting themselves to this very thing. So render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. Please remember that Paul is not talking to Christians in a Judeo-Christian nation being governed by people of their own political affiliation. He's talking to Christians in the city of Rome, in the very hub of the Roman Empire, which was being ruled over by the wicked emperor Nero, who came to power and held on to his power with ruthlessness and cruelty. And yet Paul recognizes that 
in the common grace of God, even a pagan government does a lot of good in helping to maintain an orderly society that redounds to the benefit of everyone. So Paul tells Christians to obey the laws and to honor their leaders and to give them what is due. In these verses, he's telling you to pay your federal taxes and your California state taxes, even though your state taxes are higher here than they are in other states in our country. He's telling you to pay your property tax and your car registration fees, even though those are much higher than you'll find in Arizona. He's telling you to submit to your government leaders to the farthest extent you can unless they tell you to do something that violates a clear command of Scripture. And in case you missed it earlier, Paul continues in verse 8 by going back to the call to live a lifestyle of love, saying, and just notice how often love shows up in these verses. Verse 8, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Paul seems to be really stuck on this love thing. And here he quotes from the same commandment that Governor Newsom quotes from on his out-of-state billboards, to love your neighbor as yourself. Only Paul is not using this commandment to justify murder, but to tell Christians how to behave righteously and lovingly respectfully and honorably in a wicked and corrupt society. All in all, this passage here in Romans 13 is remarkable, not just for what it says, but for what it does not say. Paul doesn't call Christians in Rome to rise up in a violent revolution to overthrow the Roman government. He calls upon them to submit to their government. Paul also doesn't tell Christians to get mean and nasty in order to get their government's attention. Instead, he calls them and he calls us to live a lifestyle of agape love for God and for others seen in all that he has said thus far in chapters 12 and 13. So why would Paul do this? Why would he say, hey, when it comes to the government, just submit and give honor and respect to those to whom it is due. Because he knows how subversively powerful all the other stuff he's called us to do really is. As we walk in agape love. He knows how powerfully, how powerful our living in the gospel manner will prove to be. And how... Us doing these other things will serve God's purposes in our own lives and in the lives of the people whose lives we touch. And Paul knows that living this way will prove to be more than sufficiently 
subversive to the powers that be. And he knows that these behaviors will ultimately prevail. If not now, they will in the final day of salvation. Speaking of which, look at how Paul closes off his instructions starting in verse 11. He looks back on all that he has counseled these Christians to do and says, do this knowing the time. He's saying, I want you to know what time it is. Do you know what time it is? He says in verse 11, do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. He doesn't say it's already the hour for you to get out of Rome. No, he tells them that it's time to be in Rome and spiritually awake and vigilant. Why? Look at the end of verse 11. For now, salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. He's telling these Christians living in the belly of the beast that salvation is already near to them and it's getting ever nearer by the day. And by the way, when you see the word salvation here in this verse, you should think of it with a capital S. This is the big salvation that comes at the second coming of Christ. And if that salvation, capital S, was near to these Christians in Rome 2,000 years ago, Imagine how much nearer it is to us today. Paul's language here means that the big salvation event is near to us here in California. It's already moving like an asteroid toward us. And it's getting ever closer by the day. And the day of impact will come soon when Jesus Christ will split the skies and return to earth to judge the wicked and establish his righteous government and reign upon the earth and ultimately make all things new. As for where Paul and his readers were on this timetable, in verse 12, Paul says, the night is almost gone, guys. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. What is the armor of light? It's the light of the gospel and all the actions that he has been calling us to in chapters 12 and 13. These are the weapons we fight with as we wage war against the darkness around us. In verses 13 and 14, he says, let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. There's a lot for all of us to really ponder and apply here. Paul is telling these saints in Rome that though it is still night all around them, the night is almost over and the day the big day, the salvation day is near. And Paul is telling them and us to be engaging in daytime behaviors that are appropriate to that coming day rather than the nighttime behaviors 
that our world is engaging in. Because Paul wants the light that shines among us to be the early rays of that coming dawn when Christ returns and ushers in that new day. And when that day comes, and it will come, it will be patently obvious to everyone that we were the ones on the right side of history. And our behaviors were way ahead of their time. Wonderfully, the early Christians followed this blueprint And without any sort of violent revolution, they triumphed over pagan Rome, armed only with the gospel of Jesus Christ and agape love. And they were used by God to bring many people to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. So I just want to urge you guys this morning as we close, don't be hopeless about California and about our country. Let's put our trust, not in our country, not in our state. Let's put our trust in Jesus Christ and live as he calls us to in these chapters, in the place where he has put us. Let us look to the future with hope and pray for God to do a great work right here in California in turning the hearts of many to himself. He can do that. I was so struck, as I know many of you were, by what happened earlier this month in Cincinnati, Ohio. It was on January uh, 2nd that the Cincinnati Bengals were playing the Buffalo Bills in what was hyped to be one of the most important games of the season as two powerful teams went against each other. But midway through the first quarter, a player collapsed on the field and suffered a cardiac arrest The medics rushed to his side and they administered CPR and had to use an AED device until his heartbeat was restored. Eventually, they put him on a stretcher and took him away in an ambulance, and no one at that point knew if he was alive or dead, if he would live or die. I wasn't watching the game at the time, but I got a text from Atlanta saying, A player just died during a game. And so we turned it on to see what was going on. It was a soul-shuddering moment for everyone watching and who would have been there at the game and for the players. And what was amazing is all of a sudden, after that one event, no one on the Bengals or the Bills wanted to play football anymore. They just wanted to have a prayer meeting in the middle of the field. Rival coaches were sympathizing with each other and rival quarterbacks were hugging each other. The gravitas of what had happened in front of their eyes was so great that football now seemed trivial by comparison. If someone had told you before that game that halfway through the first quarter, that game would be permanently suspended, and players would be kneeling in prayer and crying out to God, and an ESPN analyst would be praying to God on the air, no one would have believed you, but that's what happened. And I share this to encourage you. I don't know what God has in store for us on the road ahead, 
The next event on God's calendar may be the coming of Christ as he raptures his church and sets in motion the events of the tribulation period, which will culminate in his second coming. Or maybe our society will plunge further into darkness and maybe we will be called upon to suffer. Or maybe God will bring about some event of such gravitas that it leaves many people around us wanting to do nothing but drop to their knees and cry out to God. Whatever happens, would we be primed and ready for such a moment? We would be if we're doing what Paul calls us to do in Romans 12 and 13. So whatever happens, let's not forget that God is in control of history, that he has the power to do as he pleases among the affairs of people. Let's remember that he has many people that he has chosen to save right here in California. And let's realize that he wants to use us to reach those souls and to snatch them from the flames. And let's remember that if Christians could thrive and wield a powerful influence in the city of first century Rome, then we can do the same here in Riverside, California today. And let's realize that the most powerfully subversive things that we can do against the darkness of this state is to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ and to proclaim it to others, to surrender ourselves to God with one another as a communal sacrifice to him to be about the business of our own personal transformation into the image of Christ, to use our gifts in service to this body, to walk in love and to show the kindness of Jesus Christ toward all, including those who have wronged us, and to behave all the while with submission and honor and love toward our governing authorities to the farthest extent we righteously can. And let's realize, as Paul says in Romans 13, that the night is almost gone. And the day, the day of salvation, is near. When Christ will return and establish his reign upon the earth. And all of California, yes, even California, will give the glory to him. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for chapters like what we have just read through today. There's other chapters we could have gone to, and maybe at a later point we'll do that. But thank you for the guidance, Lord, that you provide uh, for us that leaves us with so much room and reason for hope for ourselves and for those whose lives we have the opportunity of touching. I do pray, Lord, if there's any in this room this morning that have never looked to you, Lord Jesus, and believed in you, that you would call them to yourself and save them today. And help us, Lord, to walk according to the blueprint that we have seen 
put before us today, trusting in the power of these resources, the power of the gospel, the power of Almighty God working through the gospel, and the power of agape love as we walk in love shaped by the love that you have shown to us through Jesus. And help us to know deep in our bones that we're right on the edge of night. The night is almost over. And the day is near. And we are living on the edge of this dawn. And help us to live like we know this to be true. And use Cornerstone to be a light in this dark place. And not just Cornerstone, but other faithful churches that are here in Riverside and then beyond Riverside throughout this state. And then not even just this state, but every state of our union, Lord. There's so many faithful churches that are struggling to get it right. And I pray that you would encourage them and strengthen them for the task at hand. And we don't even just pray for churches in the states across our nation, but around the world, who are some of whom are dealing with greater challenges than what we've ever even experienced. Faithful brothers and sisters and pastors and elders, Lord, encourage them and give them hope. And help us all to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That we might live for your glory and be the light you have called us to be. We ask these things, Lord, in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said,